Chapter One of Seven Footprints to Satan by A. Merritt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. Seven Footprints to Satan by A. Merritt. Chapter One The Unseen Watchers. The clock was striking eight as I walked out of the doors of the Discoverer's Club and stood for a moment looking down Lower Fifth Avenue. As I paused, I felt with full force that uncomfortable sensation of being watched that had both puzzled and harassed me for the past two weeks. A curiously prickly, cold feeling, somewhere deep under the skin on the side that the watchers are located. An odd sort of tingling pressure. It is a queer sort of sensitivity that I have in common with most men, who spend much of their lives in the jungle or desert. It is a throwback to some primitive sixth sense, since all savages have it until they get introduced to the white man's liquor. Trouble was, I couldn't localize the sensation. It seemed to trickle in on me from all sides. I scanned the street. Three taxis were drawn up along the curb in front of the club. They were empty and their drivers busy talking. There were no loiterers that I could see. The two swift side-rubbing streams of traffic swept up and down the avenue. I studied the windows of the opposite houses. There was no sign in them of any watchers. Yet, eyes were upon me, intently. I knew it. The warning had come to me in many places this last fortnight. I felt the unseen watchers, time and again, in the museum where I'd gone to look at the Yunnan jades, I had made it possible for rich old Rockbilt to put there with distinct increase to his reputation as a philanthropist. It had come to me in the theater, and while riding in the park. In the broker's offices, where I myself had watched the money the jades had brought me melt swiftly away, in a game which I now ruefully admit I knew less than nothing about. I had felt it in the streets, and that was to be expected. But I had also felt it at the club, and that was not to be expected, and it bothered me more than anything else. Yes, I was under strictest surveillance. But why? That was what this night I had determined to find out. At a touch upon my shoulder I jumped, and swept my hand halfway up to the little automatic under my left armpit. By that, suddenly I realized how badly the mystery had gotten on my nerves. I turned and grinned a bit sheepishly into the face of big Lars Thorwaldson, back in New York only a few days from his two years in the Antarctic. "'Bit jerky, aren't you, Jim?' he asked. "'What's the matter? Prohibition hooch?' "'Nothing like it, Lars,' I answered. "'Too much city, I guess. "'Too much damned continual noise and motion. "'And too damn many people,' I added with a real candor he could not suspect. "'God!' he exclaimed. "'It all looks good to me. "'I'm eating it up after those two years. "'But I suppose in a month or two I'll be feeling the same way about it. "'I hear you're going away again soon.' Where this time? Back to China? I shook my head. I did not feel like telling Lars that my destination was entirely controlled by whatever might turn up before I had spent the sixty-five dollars in my wallet and the seven quarters and two dimes in my pocket. Not in any trouble, are you, Jim? He looked at me more keenly. If you are, I'd be glad to help you. I shook my head. Everybody knew that old Rockbilt had been unusually generous about those infernal jades, I had my pride, and staggered though I was by that amazingly rapid melting away of a golden deposit I had confidently expected to grow into a barrier against care for the rest of my life, make me, as a matter of fact, independent of all chance, 
I did not feel like telling even Lars of my folly. Besides, I was not yet that hopeless of all things. A beachcomber in New York. Something would turn up. Wait a minute, he said, as someone called him back into the club. But I did not wait. Even less than barring my unfortunate gamble did I feel like telling about my watchers. I stepped down into the street. Who was it that was watching me? And why? Someone from China who had followed after the treasure I had taken from the ancient tomb? I could not believe it. Ken Wang, bandit though he might be, and accomplished graduate of American poker as well as Cornell, would have sent no spies after me. Our, well, call it transaction, irregular as it had been, was finished in his mind when he had lost. Crooked as he might be with the cards, he was not the man to go back on his word. Of that I was sure. Besides, there had been no need of letting me get this far before striking. No, they were no emissaries of Ken Wang. There had been that mock arrest in Paris, designed to get me quickly out of the way for a few hours, as the ransacked condition of my room and baggage showed when I returned. A return undoubtedly much earlier than the thieves had planned, due to my discovery of the ruse and my surprise sally which left me with an uncomfortable knife slash under an arm. But, I afterwards reflected pleasantly, had undoubtedly left one of my guards with a broken neck and another with a head that would not do much thinking for another month or so. Then there had been the second attempt when the auto in which I was rushing to the steamer had been held up between Paris and the Havre. That might have been successful had not the plaques been tucked among the baggage of an acquaintance who was going to the boat by the regular train, thinking, by the way, that he was carrying for me some moderately rare old dishes that I did not want to trust to the possible shocks of fast automobile travel, to which the mythical engagement on the day of sailing had condemned me. Were the watchers the same gang? They must have known that the jades were now out of my hands and safe in the museum. I could be of no further value to these disappointed gentlemen, unless, of course, they were after revenge. Yet that would hardly explain this constant, furtive, patient watching. And why hadn't they struck long before? Surely there had been plenty of opportunities. Well, whoever the watchers were, I had determined to give them the most open of chances to get at me. I had paid all my bills— the sixty-six dollars and ninety-five cents in my pocket comprised all my worldly goods, but no one else had any claim on it. Whatever unknown port I was clearing for, with severely bare sticks and decks, it was with no debts left behind. Yes, I had determined to decoy my enemies, if enemies they were, out into the open. I had even made up my mind as to where it should be. In all New York, the loneliest spot at eight o'clock of an October night, or any other night for that matter, is the one in which by day is the most crowded on all the globe. Lower Broadway, empty then of all its hordes and its canyon-like cleft silence, its intersecting minor canyons emptier and quieter even than their desert kin. It was there that I would go. As I turned down Fifth Avenue from the Discoverers Club, a man passed me, a man whose gait and carriage, figure and clothing, were oddly familiar. I stood stock-still, looking after him as he strolled leisurely up the steps and into the club. Then, queerly disturbed, I resumed my walk. There had been something peculiarly familiar, indeed disquietingly familiar, about that man. What was it? Making my way over to Broadway, I went down that street warily, always aware of the watchers. But it was not until I was opposite City Hall that I realized what that truly weird familiarity had been. The realization came to me with a distinct shock. In gait and carriage, 
in figure and clothing. From light brown overcoat, gray soft hat, to strong malacca cane, that man had been myself. End of chapter one.